Thank you, ladies. Good evening. If you have a Bible, and you should, because this is church, right? Um, I say that because I hang out with high schoolers, so for them it's different. I have to ask them. If you, if you have a Bible, they always forget them. But uh, open your Bibles to First Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking, actually, we have a, a huge chunk that we're going to try to look at today, and hopefully I can get through all of it. Um, chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter 3, verse 12. Um, we come here to this section from, uh, from chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter 3, verse 12, to uh, Peter's teaching on submission in the life of these believers that he's writing to, um, and in their life of submission as believers in the world. Uh, and one of the things that he keeps going over and over is has to do with the glory of God and, to the witness, and for the witness to the non-believer. Um, submission is not a, uh, especially nowadays, it's not a very popular topic. Uh, but it is an essential characteristic of, uh, of the Christian. It begins, submission begins at salvation, right? We humble ourselves and come before the Lord and and. and Seek forgiveness of sin. And then that submission, you know, life of submission continues throughout our lives uh, in the different areas of, of our lives um, as, as God gives us. And it is from now until the day he comes back or the day he takes us home, whichever comes first. Um, part of the problem with the word submission is that most people think of it as a form of slavery and bondage, you know. Uh, and maybe part of it has to do because we have uh, misused that uh, even even as believers, but the biblical reality of the word is in our understanding of God's authority in our lives. Um, he is the creator and the one who has designed, as, as we'll look at here today, uh, these different areas as, you know, design marriage and government and the church, uh, and therefore has the right to instruct us in these areas. Uh, and we need to we need to pay attention. We need to listen. Uh, we live in a society that is mainly concerned with uh, self. So automatically submission uh, is not going to go over well. We like to do what we like to do. Um, I, tell, I tell my kids and, and all the youth kids that I hang out with, you know, eventually you're going to do what you want to do. We pray that what you want to do is what the Lord wants you to do. And it's the same for all of us, which is a little bit more of a grown-up kind of kid. But we all want to do what we want to do. Uh, but, it, you know, if we call ourselves by the name of Christ, then submission is it's an important aspect of our lives. Um, in this section uh, that we're looking at tonight, Peter is detailing the importance of submission in the life of a Christian as a witness to the world. And that's verses 11 to 17 as a worker um, in chapter 2, verses um, 18 to 20 in marriage, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 and in the church, chapter 3, verses 8 uh, to 12. And we have to remember that he was writing to believers uh, in the area of Asia Minor. Uh, and these believers were going through trials. There was trials that were coming their way. He actually mentions that uh, toward the end of chapter 4. Um, he talks about the fiery trial that is about to, uh, to happen to them. And so that's the background of the letter. There's suffering that is coming up on their life, mostly because of their faith. And so he's dealing with that in their lives. Now... Here at the beginning of this, uh, this section, Peter's giving us the reason why we should be submitting to God and, and the authorities that he has set up. 
Uh, and he begins with our witness to the non-believing world here in verses uh, 12, uh, 11 and 12 and, and points to uh, who we are. As Christians, we need to and want to, uh, I like to say I make a good impression, but we need to. We need to make a good impression in the non-believing world. We need to make sure that we are good witnesses, uh, not by compromise, as a lot of the church uh, is doing today with having more in common with the world than uh, being Im- imitators of Christ. Uh, we need to, uh, you know, be who we are. We're Christians, and, and that names that name means something, right? And, and I think the the problem is that we forget who we are, whom we are representing, who we belong to. We we get caught up uh, with this world, and, and we forget we're a Christian. Uh, we're, you know, a, a moving, living advertisement for heaven. We represent Christ to the world. Uh, so if we don't represent him right, uh, we, we could be turning people away from God. So we need to keep in mind who we are. Um, eternity is a reality. And, and God could have chosen anybody as a witness, but he's chosen you and I to be his representative. He wants you and I to go out and preach the gospel, right? Um, angels can probably do a way better job, but he wants to use you and I. And it's, it's a funny thing, but that's how he wants to do it. Who are, you know, who are we? And Peter gives us an idea by way of reminder. It says in verse 11, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. So we are beloved, right? Or you whom I truly loved. We're beloved of God. And Peter brings it up actually eight times in this letter that we are loved, especially loved by God. It's, it's, it's a good thing to know. Uh, it's a good thing to be reminded that God loves us. Um, if you're if you're a parent, you know that it is important for your kids to know that to be reminded of that, and that you're there for them. And and it and it, as a believer, especially when you're going through trials, there's nothing better to know that God is in control. He loves you, and He knows what He's doing. Uh, Ephesians uh, in Ephesians chapter one, uh, toward the end there, um, and toward the end of verse six, it says that He has made a, made us accepted in the beloved. So we, we need to make sure we never forget that the creator of the universe loves us. Uh, a lot of time, uh, people, especially girls, I, I hang around with a lot of young junior high and high school girls. They get themselves in all sorts of relationships trying to find love and intimacy. And, and, and all the time, God has everything that they need. And, and, you know, we need to, even us as adults, we need to work in, your, in our intimacy with God first um, because he has everything that we need. And, and then when it comes to, especially for those who are single, uh, he has some plan for you, especially when it comes to your future spouse. And so we need to make sure that we, we work in a relationship with him first and then let him take care of the rest. Uh, we need to seek him, seek him first. We need to chase after God. Hebrews eleven six says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We, we need to diligently seek God. Uh, so Peter is saying here, you, you who... I love and are loved by God as sons and daughters. He says, I beg you. I beg you. And I don't know if you ever beg someone, but when, when, when you beg, you usually do it because it's important. Or you're desperate. But, but it matters when it's important. You know, if you're just desperate because uh, some silly thing, it, it's different. But when you, you, when you beg, it's because you consider whatever it is that you're begging or whoever it is that you're begging, uh, the, 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 the reason is important. Uh, Peter considers this very crucial to our lives and the lives of, of others. So 
uh, he understands that we're dealing with, with our witness to the world. We're dealing with, with, with the souls of, of man. So we should not forget who we are and we should pay attention. Uh, people usually pay attention when, when life's on the line. And in this case, is, is eternal life, so we, so we pay attention. We are sojourners, he says, and pilgrims, aliens, travelers passing by. Uh, we are in this world just passing by on our way to uh, the place where we're going to spend eternity with our Lord. We're, we're beyond all this, really, and yet we get so stuck with this world. We have a place that is prepared for us, and we'll spend eternity uh, in the presence of our Lord. And so we need to make sure that there is evidence of that in our lives, that it is evident that we don't belong here. Uh, we should stick out. I'm not saying be annoying, and, but then again, the way things are nowadays, maybe a little annoying might be good. Um, there should be plenty of evidence in our lives that we don't belong here. You know, what, what impression of God has and his kingdom are, are people around you getting from your version of Christianity? Now, hopefully your version of Christianity is biblical. And if that's the case, then people are going to get the right idea of who God is. And then it's up to them to decide what they're going to do with that. But I have to make sure that I represent Christ biblically. Um, now, what if I'm a bad witness? Now, that's a different story. We are to live in this world, but right, not of this world. Uh, Paul teaches us in Romans 12 that we're not to be conformed to this world. We, I mean, we obey the laws. Uh, as long as they don't contradict the word of God. That's a different story. We'll get into that in a little bit. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, Paul wrote, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that, we may that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. A soldier in battle is not concerned with, with things outside of that. He's not going to be concerned if he left the lights on before he left the house. That's not going to be his, his problem. And, and we need to make sure that we don't, we don't get distracted in this world. We're, we're passing by. We're also living in constant warf uh, state of warfare, and the enemy of our souls is relentless. Um, we cannot afford to be distracted by this world um, that, that is here today and tomorrow is gone. We, we can't be distracted by everything that goes on in this world. Ephesians six twelve says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Uh, we're both witnesses and warriors pass, passing through enemy territory telling, well, telling people how to get out, right? We, we, we are sharing the gospel, but we're also doing warfare, and we're in enemy territory, and as we're making our way through, we're telling other people how to get out of here and that there's only way out, and that's Christ. Uh, and we're in a constant battle. It's an ongoing battle. And it's a spiritual battle, although may, it may affect us physically at times. And the intended result is the destruction of, of, of men's souls. So we need to keep that in mind when, you know, we start getting cozy with the world. Because this is not our home. Uh, but even then, your greatest enemy is not Satan and, and his uh, cronies. Your biggest enemy is, is you. It's your flesh. It's my flesh. That's the one thing that always gets us, right? Uh, he says in the rest of the 11, says, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. To abstain, to desist, to refrain. This is what we're to do with the desires of our, our natural man um, that is contrary to our spiritual life in order to gain control of our souls. How do we do that? Well, Galatians 5.16 
Paul says, you know, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Or to walk in the spirit, we are to uh, live a spirit-filled life. We are to follow after the things of the spirit. We are to be occupied with the life of the spirit. We have to pursue the things of God. We have to be engaging in our relationship with God. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 says, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Later in 2 Timothy 2.22, it says, Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. There is, there is an attitude here that I am actually going after the things, the things of the Lord. In other words, when, when my Holy Spirit, uh, Spirit-filled life is the priority, what will be evident in my life is the fruit of the Spirit, not the work of the flesh, the works of the flesh, right? What is it that is evident in our lives? We need to ask ourselves, you know, what do we chase after? Where are we pursuing? What is it that I am practicing? What is it that has become habitual in my life? These are the things that I pursue. I mean, you look at the life of a person, and the things that they go after are important to them, and, and they become evident. They're, they talk about it all the time. When my Holy Spirit-filled life is a prayer, then, the, then, then my witness is going to be right. And he says in verse 12, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. The Gentiles here in the context is the unsaved, not the non-Jews, um, as it is in other places in Scripture. If, if you ever get an opportunity to, um, to share the gospel with people and you, you, you try to you know, present the gospel and tell them about the Lord, uh, everyone has an excuse um, that they have agreed in their heads and why is the reason that they're not going to believe with it. They, everybody has a reason why they don't want to believe. Um, you and I need to make sure that you, are, you, you and I, our poor witness of Christ is not that reason, right? We need to make sure that that's not there. So th- then every aspect of our lives and our conduct must be honorable and must be honest. Uh, this means that not only should we be telling the truth and, and be doing what is right, but that there should be practical, tangible evidence in my life that I belong to Christ and that when I say, hey, this is what I believe, they can see it in my life, too. Our witness is primarily with what we say, but it needs to be backed up by, by the way we live. There should be nothing in our conduct that should uh, give the non-believer an, an excuse or a reason to attack the gospel. They're going to do it all on their own. I shouldn't be making it easier for them because of my hypocrisy or, the, or, or how I just contradict myself. Uh, Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And God will be glorified, he says here, in the day of visitation. And it could be a couple things. It could be that the day when every knee, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, uh, as an unbeliever is uh, condemned. But it also might refer, and I think that's what it's talking about here, when the day when, when people consider the witness they receive from other believers, from your life, from my life, and, and, as, and, and as God convicts them, they turn to him and are saved. And we've all been there. If you're here, you're a Christian today, you've been there. You've been in, you were on that day when you, you had heard the gospel, and sometimes it happened the same day you heard it, and that's the day you got saved, but sometimes it took some time. And then eventually you were convicted, and you remember what you heard, and you, you came to the Lord. Either way, God will be glorified. How are we affecting the lives of the people around us? Is our witness right, or are we uh, misrepresenting God? I think 
that we are our best, glorifying God. Not when we come to church and worship, although that does. I mean, don't get me wrong, come to church. Uh, but God is glorified when Christ is visible in our lives as a witness to the non-believing world. Because that's, that's what we're here for. Uh, and that is this point that Peter is making here through uh, submission. Jesus being the ultimate example, as, as we'll see. Uh, we just read Matthew five sixteen uh, and Mark sixteen fifteen. Jesus and he said to them, "Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature." That's that's the last thing he said. He didn't, you know, sit down. I have a list for you. Just go preach the gospel. Next time, you know, we come to church. Actually, here today, we need to ask ourselves. When, I, I tell our kids all the time, "Why are you here? Why are we coming to church?" Why do we come to church? If it's not primarily to grow in a relationship with God so that he can use you for his glory as a witness to the lost, then we're here for all the wrong reasons, right? Uh, Pastor Jack on, on, on Thursday said there is no sitting ministry. He didn't save you just to come to church and sit down. There is no, you look at, at the spiritual gifts, sitting in, in, in the chairs uh, for the rest of your life until the Lord comes back is not one of the spiritual gifts. Do we believe what Paul says in Romans 1.16 when he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Do we believe that? If not, we we're, we're, need to figure out why we're here. Why is it that we come? Because all the, all the doing, all the serving, all the studying, all the worshiping, uh, it's not going to mean anything, and it's not going to glorify God, and people are not, if people are not given an opportunity to hear the gospel. And that's where a lot of the church is going today. It's just entertainment. It's just a place to go hang out. I call that high school when I was young. As we submit to God and walk in obedience, we have opportunities through our witness to present the gospel to the world. And, and that submission to Christ expands to submission to other areas of our lives, uh, to the glory of God in the day of visitation, like, Paul, like Peter says here. He then moves on to our responsibility as believers uh, and our submission in society, specifically to the governing authorities. Now, that doesn't sound like something that we might like to do, especially nowadays, given the current state of almost every level of our government. Uh, but it has, but it, it wasn't any better when Peter wrote this. Uh, if it's, if the letter was written around 64 AD, uh, that was around the same time that uh, Nero was getting ready or had just set Rome on fire and blamed it on the Christians. How, so how was your week? You know, it's like Christians just set the, the most important city in the world on fire. Let's go after them. Um, our week was, my week was not that tough. It was busy, but it wasn't that, that crazy. It was, so we have no excuse. Uh, God's glory is, is the reason. And the conclusion to this then is the life of submission. And that is why he begins, verse 13, with therefore. It says, therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme. But therefore, is in view of what has been said, having understood the reason and the priority, and I pray that we understand what our priority should be, the gospel going out and God being glorified. Uh, he is, he's telling them to submit. The word there, if you hung around here long enough, you heard Xavier mention this time and time again, the word is hupotasso. It's a military term, and it means to line oneself under somebody else. It, 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 it is, it, as it's written here, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. We are to submit. 
And, and the word is used to mean a complete submission. And technically, if there is no complete submission, it's not submission. Right? It's, it's just the way it goes. You know, full submission or is not submission at all. The word appears in the same form in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 5, chapter, I'm sorry, verse 5, verse 22, and chapter 5, verse 5. And as I mentioned, it's a military term, and it means to arrange the troops or division under the command of a leader. And, in order, and it is in order to be done, um, in order for it to be done, it requires obedience, it requires cooperation, uh, it requires me taking responsibility of, of who I am, personal responsibility. And it has nothing to do with the person that one submits under, right? It is, it is in a military uh, uh, thing, it's, it's, it's the rank that one submits under. In, in the military, the commanding officer might be a total dummy, but we answer to the rank. Not because we like the guy. And it is for the sake of the proper function of that troop or that regiment. And it'll save lives when in battle, right? It's, it's the same when it comes to our life in Christ. The same applies here in the case of the government. Peter says that we are to submit yourself to every ordinance. That's the civil institutions. That's the government. He says, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers or for the praise of those who do good. Remember, he understood what sort of government he's talking about. I mean, it, things are, are tough right now. People, you know, there's people in government that are pretty crazy. But he's talking Nero. This, this, he understood what he was talking about. He understood who was in charge that time. Um, the Apostle Paul uh, makes a similar point, actually, in Romans 13, 1 to 7. It says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, wh- whoever exists, I'm sorry, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authorities? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. But he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who, uh, who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministering ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And Jesus taught the same thing in the same line in Mark twelve thirteen. It says, Then they sent to, to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in these words. And when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of man, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And you know how it goes. He takes a coin and says, hey, whose image is it in? That's Caesar. He says, and you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and, the God, and God, to God the things that are God. And it just blew their mind. They weren't expecting that. But Paul and Peter agree that the authorities and governments that exist are set up by God. Even when, when Jesus, told, Jesus told Pilate in John 19 that any authority that Pilate had to crucify Jesus was given to him from above. He made it clear. You, all this, you have, it's been given to you. Now, this doesn't mean that we should just do whatever the government says, because if it contradicts the word of God, then we stick with the Lord. We do what, what Peter said in, five, in Acts uh, 5.29, says we ought to obey God rather than men. Uh, and as, far as, we, as much as we can, we do that by legal means. Um, but sometimes, you know, that's a different issue. I mean, elections are important. They're coming up. 
That's all that you hear on the news nowadays. Um, and every year or every four years, uh, God puts a mirror uh, to the American people, and uh, we vote according to our likeness. That's why uh, we have the president that we have. It is, it is a reflection of the society that we live in. Um, I don't like it any more than, than most people, but our government is a reflection of our society. Uh, we look at even just the crazies who are running uh, right now, Hillary and Trump, and, and these people are a perfect reflection of our society. And the scary thing is one of them is going to be president. Um, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now, as things continue to develop on a downward spiral and you watch the news, I sometimes don't want to watch the news anymore. I don't want to read any more blogs. Uh, we might be forced to side with God and obey him, uh, but it's going to cause, might cost us our freedom and, and our lives. I mean, our level of persecution that we go through here is nothing compared to the rest of the world. We're, we're wimps in that sense. Uh, but always we have to obey God rather than men, right? When Peter and John were threatened in order to stop preaching the gospel, um, in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, he says, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we, we have seen and heard. What would our answer be? Now, when the governing authorities are working, then the believer has nothing to worry. Right? As they are here to execute judgment on the evil. And we, we live in a really good country. I mean, with all the messes that are going on, uh, it's better than the rest of the world. I came from Argentina and, and talked to my mom from time to time down there. And, and jokingly, you know, like a lot of people joke, well, if so-and-so wins, I'm out of here. She goes, oh, please don't. Don't come over here. <laughs> of course I'm not, but it, it, it's, things are worse everywhere else. Also, we're commanded to pray for, for the governing authorities. And actually, this is a way we submit. By praying for them. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplication, prayer, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. We need to pray for our president, the one we have now and whoever it is that is coming next. Because uh, they need to come, Jesus, they need to come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. If they don't, they'll spend eternity in hell. I mean, I don't care if you don't like the guy, but uh, being separated from God, it's not a good thing. And why should we do this, this submission? He says, for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. It's, it's not about you. It's not about me. It is about Christ, our Lord. That word means master, right? The one whom we belong to. So our lives should be lived for the benefit, and here it is again, for, you know, for the glory of God. Who are we living for? Now, I don't know if you ever noticed, when you, when you have a conversation with people, and people are talking, their conversations are usually about the things that they consider important to them. If you get me talking about cars, that's it. Especially if they're German and small. And it's just something that I enjoy. And, and then there's guys, you know, I, I, I hang out here with some guys that so all they talk about is basketball. And they start talking about basketball, and I leave the room because I just don't get it. But if they start talking about cars, I'm there. And we, talk, we tend to talk about things that are important to us. What is it that, besides those things, 
What about our, when it comes to our Lord? You know, that should be something that's continually in our, in our mouth, coming out of our mouth and sharing with people. It should be him. It should be our life in him. And if it's not Christ whom we are living for, then, you know, why do we call him Lord? Jesus in Matthew seven twenty says, Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And there's a lot of people like that, that these people were doing all these things. There's a lot of people in the church that do all these things. Lord, have we, have we not come to church every Sunday? I haven't missed a Sunday. You know, except when Xavier's not here. Then I just go somewhere else. Have we, have we not served here and there? If, if there is no obedience to the will of God, all these things mean nothing. We're just religious. And that's you know, the reason for the command to submit. It says, for this is the will of God. The will of God is that you live in such a way that glorifies him. The will of God is, is that you reflect Christ, that, he, you reflect, that, is, that his will is, reflects Christ in you. That the rule, the, the, the rule of God in heaven is evident in your life here on earth. When, when he was teaching his disciples to pray in Luke 11, he says, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our, our, his will needs to be evident in our lives here. What is the reason for having his will done? Verse 15, it says that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. In other words, that by your continual living right before God, which is for his glory first, and then the benefit of others, might put, uh, put to silence, might shut up the mouths of those who are ignorant to spiritual things and unwilling to, ne- learn, uh, to learn and accept the truth. Because one thing is to be without knowledge, and that can be, fixed by teaching that right but if a person that is without knowledge is not willing to learn that there's really nothing you can do at the end and then it will be too late the truth will will shut people up jesus said to the religious leaders uh, in john eight thirty two, is and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free but they were not willing to know the truth the truth of the gospel will either set you free or shut you up it will set you free when you're willing to accept and repent or will shut you up at the end when it condemns you into eternity apart from God for rejecting the truth of Christ. How are we living our lives in this world? What does it look like to the non-believer? Now, how does this doing good look in, in practical terms? Look at verse 16. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. If you're a believer, you are, you are free. That means that you are free to live for Jesus. You are free from sin and death. You're free to say no to sin and the desires of your flesh because you're now, you're now you're controlled by the Spirit of God. The non-believer can't do that because they're controlled by their sinful nature. Galatians 5.16 says, well, They walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. How are we using our freedom? Peter says that we shouldn't use this new freedom in Christ to excuse our carnality, your vice. The word for vice means depravity, wickedness, and the Greek is the word kakia. When I teach that to the kids, they laugh when I say that word because it sounds like something else. And they think it's funny. But really, you know what? When we excuse our flesh, it says that we're covering our vice. We're using a cloak to cover our kakia, 
And all we're doing is make, uh, you know, masking the stench of our sin with excuses. Paul says in Galatians 5.13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty only. Do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. What are we doing with our freedom in Christ? 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of many. In, in, in chapter 10, verse 23, says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the, the other's well-being. Again, what's the priority? God's glory and the salvation of the lost. Then how we live should, should exemplify that. We're not being imitators of Christ when we're living for self and that which matters to my flesh first, right? I'm not imitating Christ when I'm living for myself. I'm not imitating Christ when I'm fulfilling the lust of my flesh, when I'm doing the things that my carnal nature desires. I'm not being Christ-like. Verse 17 says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. To honor means to value. How value, how value are our people? Christ died for them. I think they're valuable. And we are to love with the same love that God loved them. And we are to fear God, do we? If we do, his glory will be our priority and people being pointed to him. The next important part of, of him being glorified. Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another in the fear of God. Then Peter continues and he brings it closer to home, to our work relation. Verse 18, he says, servants... Be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. The word there for servants is, is, uh, refers to household or domestic uh, slaves. Uh, the domestic uh, servants serve different functions from the ones that wash your feet when you came in from the street, which was uh, one of the lowest positions a servant could have. And yet... Christ exemplifies servanthood to his disciples by doing exactly that in John 13, washing his disciples' feet. And then you had other servants uh, like Luke, who was a doctor. Uh, Colossians 4.14 alludes to that. Others were teachers, musicians, uh, actors, secretaries. Now, so you get an idea uh, of the condition. There were somewhere around 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire at this time. Romans consider it degrading to do any labor since they were rulers, sort of like teenagers. They, de- they consider it degrading to do any labor. And so all labor was done by their slaves, sort of like their parents. If you have a teenager, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes there were good relationship between slaves and masters, but it was not always uh, the case. They had no rights as slaves. They were considered, they consider, they were considered property. They they were not considered a person, just an instrument and of no more value than a tool or cattle. And the masters had complete authority and power to put them to death. That's, that's the servants or the slaves at the time. And Peter tells them to submit, to be submissive, same word, the hupotasso, to line oneself under, that military term. To the masters, the word for master there is despotes. It means one who has absolute ownership or control. We get the word despot from. Now, the situation would be that one of these slaves would come to Christ. Now, he's free in Christ, 
but still a slave when it came to the law of the land. What were they supposed to do, right? He says, will you be submissive to your masters? Paul deals with it too. He addresses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20 on. He says, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Also, if the master was a believer, the servant needed to make sure that he did not take advantage of the situation or disregarded the master because, after all, in Christ, we're all the same. Uh, you know, it was even possible that the slave, when believers gather, the slave was, could, could have been the teacher. And the master's just sat there listening to the Bible. Study. And that would make for an awkward situation. You know, you're both believers. This guy you work for, or he owns you, and he wasn't being very nice this week. And now you're standing here, and you're going to share the, the word of God, and there he is sitting. That would make things interesting. Uh, Paul deals with that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, uh, Colossians 3, Titus 2. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Let as many bond services are under the yoke, count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. You know, the New Testament says nothing against slavery from, from a political uh, side. And that's because it's not a political book. It's interested in the eternal aspect of all men through the forgiveness of their sins in Christ. If all those 60 million slaves would have been freed but didn't have Christ as Lord and Savior, it would have done nothing really when it comes to eternity. But a slave who is, in that, in that time, a slave who was a believer was even greater, a greater witness and was of, even of greater value to his master, and was not limited by the laws and or, or politics when it came to the gospel. The same thing goes for us, right? You have bosses. If, 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 you're, if your boss is not a Christian, you should be the best employee he has or she has. Because you, you answer to not just your boss, but you answer to the Lord. And if he's a Christian... Don't take advantage of it because that's easy to do, you know, because then you get the, the, the bro treatment with, with your boss. Now, eventually, the gospel made a difference in, in overthrowing slavery in the Roman Empire. And Christians throughout the centuries have, have always worked for the freedom of people, uh, but always pointing people to the gospel, always pe pointing people to Christ. You know, uh, we had a missions meeting today, and... and June 11th, we're going, to, we're going to Mexico. And we go to places where people have very, very little. They don't have a lot. And you, especially when, when you see kids, that's when it gets to me. And you see where they're at and what they're going through. And you want to just stuff them on your van and bring them home, but then you end up in the news if you do that. You can't. You can't. And you can't bring them all home. You just can't. But you can point them to the Lord. Because I, if you have an opportunity to help, physically you do it. But that is temporary because eventually some of those things run out. But their relationship with Christ, uh, it's forever. That, that, that freedom that they have in Christ, that assurance of eternal life, no one can take away from them. And, and, and 
It's been like that from the beginning. That's, that's where it's at. I mean, you give a person a million dollars, but if they don't have Christ, they're, they're, they're the most wretched, miserable, poor person on the earth. It doesn't matter. You're like, well, give me a million dollars, I'll show you. I don't have it, so you get nothing. Jesus rebuked the, the church of Laodicea, which had fallen into apostasy. They had abandoned what they believed, much like a lot of churches today. And he says in, in Revelation 3.17, Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have, been, have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. There are a lot of Christians like that today, trusting in what they have and what they do, but not trusting fully on Christ and obeying his word. Now, they were to be submissive to their masters, it says, with fear, meaning that if they didn't, there were consequences to this. And it was to both the good and gentle and those who were, who were harsh. Now, before I, I came on staff here, I had other jobs, and I had all kinds of bosses. Some were really good, some were not. Some I loved working for, and some I didn't. But they were my bosses. And, and as a believer, they needed to get the best from me. It didn't matter what they thought. It didn't matter, uh, you know, they had a bad day and I would. Now, it applied, this applies to us. We're not slaves like they were. We can, if we don't like our bosses, we can find another job and go work somewhere else. Right? Uh, but it still applies to us. There, there has to be submission. It has to be to those who are in authority over us, uh, being parents or bosses and even the government, and always in the Lord, meaning that as long as it doesn't contradict the Word of God, even in your job. You know, if your boss asks you to do something illegal, well, sorry, boss. You know, just, well, you lose your job. Well, but even, you know, even if you do what is right, there's no guarantee of consequences, right? Now, how do you submit to those in authority uh, will be a witness. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. The context is that one uh, does it because of faith and love and obedience to God's word and is suffering, but then God honors that person. And the idea is that this person who is being wrong has his or her priorities straight. They understand who they belong to. They belong to God regardless of their condition. Moses was that example, Right? says that by faith, in uh, Hebrews eleven twenty seven says, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is visible, invisible. Moses' eyes were on the eternal prize, not in the temporal world, um, and, and its temporal riches. How you react when you're being mistreated shows where your priorities are at, too. Uh, it shows what is of value to you. The reality, you know, the thing is that the reality of who you are is greater than your circumstances. We can't forget that. This, this, is, this is not my home. I belong to Christ. And I live in a world that is contrary to who God is. But I don't, this is, I'm just passing by here. And he reminds them at the beginning of this letter. Verse 20 says, For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, uh, this is commendable before God. You know what he's talking about. You get beat, you suffer because of your poor decisions, because of your sin. Don't act like you're a martyr. Just take it. Okay? You deserve it. That's it. Um, today, everyone's the victim, right? You watch the news, everybody's been victimized. But the problem is that it takes away from those who are real victims. But when you did nothing wrong and are falsely accused and punished or even misrepresented, how do you react? You must remember who you answer to. You belong to God 
And what matters is really what he thinks of you, not what people think. Um, and, and what if no one ever finds out? I mean, it's, 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 not, it's not nice when, when, when you're being mistreated. And so if you're wrong, you treat it like a servant. Remember that they did the same thing with your Lord. And other believers, we're, we're in good company, right? Uh, this is Peter here in verses 21 to 25, points us specifically to Jesus then, our primary example um, as a model of submission. And I'm glad he does that because these people would say, well, okay, Peter, you're giving us all these things to submission, but why do, we, why do we need to listen to you? And so he points to Christ. So the authority then comes from Christ, not from Peter alone. The reality is that they would have you know, been corrected to, to, to question Peter. So if Jesus did it, so can we, right? It says in 21, For to this you were called, because Christ will suffer for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. It is Jesus who has called us to follow him. God is calling you, if, if you don't have him as Lord and Savior, know that he's calling you unto himself, and he wants to, to give you eternal life. How will you respond to his calling? If you ignore it, then you're not his. You'll be lost in your sins. And he has called believers to a specific life. He's, he's, not, he's, he's not vague about it. He's very specific to the life that he's called you and I as believers. The life that we are called to is one that is always seeking to please God. And, and back to the point that he's trying to make to glorify God and point people to Christ. You and I as believers, we are the church. We are those cold ones. That's what, that's what the word church means, right? The cold ones. We have been called out of this world unto God. And here Peter tells us that it is Jesus who has called us to follow his example of suffering, that he did, uh, and he did it by suffering for us. So we are to follow his, his steps with, when it comes to suffering. The word for example that he uses here, that we are to, he is to be our example, it, it means it's found only here in the New Testament, and it means it's different than all the other words that you, that you read when it comes to the Greek and, and the rest of the New Testament. It means something written underneath or underwritten, something to be traced or copied. So if you ever trace something, you know that you need to, you have to be very, very careful uh, to take care to make sure that you come as close as possible to the original. You have the original, you trace over it. But in order for that to happen, you have to have the original. Otherwise, you come up with your own ideas and your own example. And that's, that's what happens with a lot of people. Now, you and I have the original, that's, that's Jesus. How are we following his steps? How are we walking in the same way that he walks? How are we submitting as he submits? The word of follow means to follow close after a person, to be right behind him. Now, we are promised trials, right? Jesus in John 16 tells us that in this world we will, will, we suffer, will, will have tribulation. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 3 that if we choose to live godly lives in Christ, we will suffer persecution. So then if suffering is a guarantee, who should we look to? We should look to Christ. He's the best example for that. What example has he left for us? He says, who committed no sin or was deceit found in him? He was sinless. Verse 22 actually is a quote from four different passages in Isaiah uh, that describes him as the suffering, sinless servant. One of the most common ones is Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now, Jesus was sinless, but this, this passage points out that when he was suffering at the hand of the authorities, not only was he sinless because he'd never sinned, he did not partake in sin in his heart or in what he said. 
And that was just what his life was all throughout, right? And if you think about it, when he was being beaten to get a, a, a confession from him, he had nothing to confess. If you've ever been falsely accused, Christ understands. If you ever suffer the consequences because of other people's sin, the Lord understands. You're in good company. How did, how did you or how are you dealing with that? Uh, because it's, it, when we suffer wrong and done nothing wrong, it's hard. It's not, it's not fair. But we need to, we need to lay it at, at the Lord's feet. We need to um, make sure that we trust him and use wisdom. It doesn't mean that you need to let yourself be taken advantage of, but you need to trust the Lord. Ultimately, he'll, he'll take care of it. And Jesus understood this well. He says he trusted his father, verse 23, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. No matter what they did to him or say to him or say about him, he trusted his father. And in Luke twenty-two forty-two, 42, it's saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He committed himself to the father. That word means that he... Um, put himself in the hands of someone else for custody. Actually, it's a banking term. It means to, de- to deposit for safekeeping. He understood that his father could make no mistakes. You and I know and understand that too, but yet we have a hard time trusting God with everything in our lives. And maybe it's because Jesus knew the father well, and, 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 and that's why you know, he said, I am the father of one, and maybe we just don't know the father that well, and we need to. We need to trust him. We need to um, get close, walk closely with God and need to invest into our relationship with him because uh, it's important. It's eternally important to us. Jesus prayed for us in John 17 several times that he, several times that he wanted us to be one with the Father so that he, as you and I are one, they'll be one with us. We must commit ourselves to our God who loves us and sent his son to take our place on the cross, to take our sins and pay the price for it. Later in chapter 4, verse 19, Uh, Peter says, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him and doing good as to a faithful creator. Now, his suffering was for our benefit, to say the least, right? 24 says, who himself bore our sins on his own body on the tree that we have and died to sin might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Christ took our place on the cross and was cursed for us. He died in our place, paid our sin debt and redeemed us to himself. He took upon himself the wrath of God for the judgment of sin. And those who do not have Christ as Lord and Savior will have to pay for their sins and eternity separated from God. And, and now he did that so we wouldn't have to. So because of what Christ our Savior did, how should we be living? It says that, that we have died to sin, my live, nor, uh, my live for righteousness. Who or what are we living for? And don't forget who we are. Look at what it says in 25. For you are like sheep going astray, but I have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He compares us to sheep. Now, when the Bible compares you and I to sheep, it doesn't, it's not saying fluffy, fluffy and cute. When, when the Bible compares you and I to sheep, it means dumb and smelly. Um, sheep are not very tough animals. They cannot survive by themselves. They're left alone. They eat the wrong stuff. They, they fall off the cliff. They tip over and they can't get up if their uh, wool is too thick. They're not very tough animals. That's, that's you and I. So we can't think of ourselves too highly, right? But remember how blessed we are to have a father who loves us like nobody ever will and demonstrated his love through his son. We have a savior who counted it a privilege to give his life for ours.
That's how much he loves us. Who is your example in this life? If it's not Christ, then we're deceiving ourselves. Peter then continues uh, the theme of submission, an example of Christ in chapter 3, and moves into the era of marriage. And now, this is where, you know, sometimes we get in ourselves in trouble because we don't like what the Bible has to say about where, where, where women should be submissive and how. And, but, you know, here's a disclaimer. The life of a Christian is first and foremost a spiritual life. It must be lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. So any attempts to try and apply any biblical principles, no matter how good they might sound, to one's life apart from a personal relationship with Christ will ultimately fail and in the process for, frustrate the life of the one to try in it. So when, when he says, talking about submission here, this is for believers. He's not talking to anybody else. So here in verses 1 to 6, we're, we're looking at God's design for believing wives of submission to their husband, even the non-believing husbands as witnesses. And so the first thing that Peter points out is that their belief, their faith needs to be lived out. It needs to be evident to their husbands. It says in verse 1, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. The word likewise points back to the example of Christ in verses, uh, of chapter 2, verses 21 and 25 first, and also to the entire section of submission. Again, the word submission is Hupotas was the same, same term. In this case, to their own husband, even the unbelieving husbands. And of course, we need to understand the meaning behind the word submission. It's not to allow the other person to do whatever they want and to rule over us like a dictator, to rule over the wife like, like a despot. It is for the purpose and proper function of, in this case, marriage. It is in order to, to go according to the design and it has nothing to do with one part being greater than the other. Um, in this case, the believing wives are reminded that it is God who designed marriage, and therefore it has to work according to his design. And Jesus pointed that out as he was quoting Genesis chapter 2 uh, in Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. God designed marriage, and therefore it is he who determines how it should work. Uh, and that design, the Lord made the man the head of the home. Ephesians 5.23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, not because he's superior to her, but so that the home would function properly and, and for the protection of the wife and the children. All right? Later in, 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 in verse 7, he says that the wife is the weaker vessel. That makes the man the weak vessel. Paul continues in Ephesians 5, uh, 23. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the world. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says, But I want you to know that the head of the, every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And Jesus submitted himself to the Father. Was it because he was inferior to the Father? No. But because it was in order to fulfill the will of the Father, in order to save you and I. And we are to have the same mind, right? Paul tells us that in, in Philippians chapter 2, that we are to have the mind of Christ. Submission for the believer is, is a priority, is a must. And Peter understood that, and that is why he's, he's going into so much detail in this area. And if, if you and I have a problem with submission, we're not going to be able to be Christ-like. It's going to be a problem. So when Peter tells the believing wives to be submissive, it is, not for, it is, it is for a greater purpose, actually, than, 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 than what they might see. And, and sometimes, you know, we get caught up in what we're hearing when it comes to the Word of God because we understand it through the eyes, of, through the eyes and the ears and the understanding and the wisdom of the world. And we get tweaked. We're like, wow, well, I don't like that. Well, you know what? It's, it's not up to you. You, know, you guys are those who you are single here today. If you if you ever plan to get married, 
and have your marriage be used for God's glory, you need to pay attention. Your marriage is never going to be perfect. You're not going to have a perfect marriage. But if you want to glorify God, it has to be biblical. There is no wiggle room there. It says that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. Now you might ask, how is it that this Christian woman now is married to a non-believer? Doesn't the Bible say that they should not be unequally yoked in Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14? Yep, yeah, it does. Then what happened? Well, she, she got married when she was an unbeliever to another non-believer. Now she gets saved. Now she's a Christian, but her husband is not saved. That happens even today. And it happens the other way around. The husband gets saved. The wife doesn't get saved. What do you do? Well, the Bible addresses that. You can't, you can't leave her. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12 and on. You can't leave her. I mean, sin is complicated, right? Just the way it works. That even if those who do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. So now that she is a believer, she should live her life in a way that is a witness to her Christianity. How you live your life is a, is a powerful witness to the people around you. And what you say and you believe, and it will eventually open the doors for you to share the gospel. There's nothing worse than when a Christian tells people about Jesus but lives up there as if there is no Savior. That's, that's the worst. Uh, hypocrisy is a big problem in the church. How are we living our life? Does your life match what you say you believe? Does your life agree with the Word of God? Verse 2 is this, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. As the unbelieving husband of Sirs, that means he's paying attention to the believing wife now in her, her her chaste conduct, her purity, and that's in respect toward the way she behaves toward her husband, obedient to God's design for marriage. Something for us to remember, too, that the world is watching. You're a believer. The world is watching. We are to be a good witness. As I mentioned earlier, the Christian life is one that's a spiritual. It needs to be lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. It says, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. We live in a society that its emphasis is outward. We're, we, we live in a society that's focused on aesthetics above all. But all that is temporary, right? Eventually, you'll look like me. This is it. Old. So if you live your life focused on the physical, eventually all that goes away. And you'd be missing on God's greater work, God's greater plan. Uh, plan. Especially um, for those of you seeking a mate. The word for adornment here is Cosmos. And it's in reference to the order system. We get the word cosmetic from it. There's nothing wrong with wearing makeup. Uh, Javener McGee used to say, you know, if the barn needs painting, paint it. Um, now, I'm not saying that ladies are barns, but that's what he used to say. I'm just quoting. But, you know, you ever seen the extreme of difference between uh, um, movie stars with and without makeup? She's like, oh, my gosh, what happened to you? They try so hard to maintain the youthful look that it becomes a circus act. The arranging of the hair, the, uh, the wearing of, of gold points to the fact of the, that this person was trying to point the attention to their wealth. And so they were, they were showing, so this is who I am because of what I wear. And a lot of times people associate you know, with others for the wrong reason. A lot of times it's, 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 uh, it's um, materialistic. Because the flesh loves to display itself. And you see it nowadays with social media. You know, narcissism is the name, the name of the game, uh, especially around young people. And a lot of times it's, it's, it's sadly get, they get it from their parents. Um, and it's become prevalent. And the sad thing is it's become prevalent with men, too, when it comes to narcissism. It's, it's hilarious. 
in a sad way. Now, Peter's not saying that Christian women aren't able to wear the latest hair and the signs and stuff. I mean, just look nice. Just be mindful of who you are. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Who you are is not, uh, is not this that we looked at. What we see in other people, that's a reflection of who they really are, right? And what's important is it's the inward, that quiet spirit. That's where God works. That's where he does. That's where he changes you from. All the outward stuff uh, will impress people for a while, but eventually it turns into uh, uh, wrinkles and, and all kinds of weird stuff. Where are we investing in our lives? He says in verse 5, For in this manner in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. He points at the examples that we have of, of women and men in the past. Who do we imitate? Because this world has its representatives, and, and they do a good job of representing the world. But what do they have to offer? You know? And guys, verse 6 doesn't mean that your wife should call you Lord, by the way. Okay, you can try that, but I don't suggest it. It says here that Sarah called Abraham Lord, so you start calling me Lord from now on. And just in case that the guys thought that they were off the hook, verse 7 says, Husband likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife, so the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. The believing husbands were also to be examples of godliness. That were likewise refers to everything that was said before in regards to submission. This time the believing husband toward the wife were to submit to one another, but even the non-believing wife. And in case that you ladies still think that it's not fair, the greatest responsibility and accountability is on the husband. Remember what we were reading in Ephesians 5? In verse 25, it says, Husband, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church, and he gave his life for her. That's great responsibility there for man. God has a plan for our lives and, and, and specific design for the things that, that your life is made of. And we either follow his instructions and be part of something greater than ourselves, or we just do like the rest of the world, do our thing. And we can do great things, but it's going to be uh, temporary. Now, we come to the end here, and we'll finish real quick. He's dealing with the believer's submission, and now he comes to the church. Because it is his church. And therefore, he has a design of how it should be. Right? And by the church, he's not talking about the building because Christ did not, did not die for a building or for an organization. He died for you and I. And Galatians 2.20 at the end says, Because the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. You are the church, not this building. Like Savior says a lot of times, uh, don't come to church, be the church. Or don't just come to church, but be the church. And how that happens is according to God's precepts, according to his word. Uh, the majority of the New Testament is dedicated to believers, to the church. So we have no excuse when it comes to how the church should uh, live. So even Peter writes here to these believers in Asia Minor and instructs them and, and instructs the church in the area of submission. He says, verse 8, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. The word finally means to set out for a definite point of goal. It, says, it could be translated in conclusion of everything that we looked at. Peter has given uh, instructions in areas that deal with, uh, with the world that they lived in uh, as a witness to others with marriage and, and, 
and in, in work areas, and these are all examples of submission. And now he deals with us as believers and how we should live toward one another. And there are five things that he points to. It says that we are to be of one mind. Not my mind, not your mind, but the mind of Christ. All right? Philippians 2 says that we are uh, to fulfill his joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. This again points back to the section of 1 Peter 2.21-25 and Jesus' example of submission. If you're a believer, then you have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16, For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Now, if you don't have the mind of Christ, the Bible says that you are carnally minded, meaning that you are directed by your, your natural inclinations and not by the Spirit. Whose mind do we have? He says so that we are to have compassion. The word there is sympathy, and we get the English word sympathy from it. It means to have pity for one in need. And the greatest example of that is Christ, and, uh, who, and he was 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And these are all, they, they work together. You cannot have one without the other. If we are one mind with Christ, then we can have compassion for other people. Romans 12.15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. He tells us here also, uh, Peter, that we are to love as brethren. The word is Philadelphus. Is we get brotherly love, being of the same family. Peter mentioned that earlier in chapter 1, verse 22. Of, um, he says that we are to, love, to, to have the spirit of insincere love of the brethren. It's the same word. And, you know, every single one of us here, every person in this room, this, this is where we're at here today, uh, these people will be closer to you than... Your family, if, you're, if your families are non-believers. I'm closer to people here than my non-believing relatives because these are the people I'm going to spend eternity with. This is it. Now, if you have believing relatives, that's a double blessing. But these are the people here that you're going to spend eternity. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ, and we should treat one another as such. Now, if you were to a jerk to your brother and sister, then that might be a problem. Uh, but this is who we are. We are to be tender-hearted. It literally means to be moved with the inward bowels of affection. That's a funny word because in, in ancient times, in, in general, you did not love a person with all your heart. You loved them with all your gut, with all your bowels, uh, which would be really cool if, if uh, guys, especially teenage boys, start using that when they approach girls. They stay away. And instead of saying, I love you with all my heart, says, you know, my intestines really care for you. Jeremiah 4.19, it says, Oh, my soul, my soul. And that word there is the same word for inner um, entrails. I am pained in my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. We are to be courteous. It means to be humble-minded and friendly, thinking of others first. And it's interesting, all these things fit perfectly uh, and they're perfectly fulfilled in Christ because he is the perfect example of all these things. And, and the cool thing of that is that you and I are able to do the same because not because of who we are, but because of him who is in us. Verse 9 says, not returning evil for evil nor reviling for reviling, but the contrary blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Now, these verse, this here in verse 9 is a result of the five things that he mentions in verse 8. And it goes hand in hand with chapter uh, 2, verse 23, when he says that he, when Jesus 
uh, was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Not returning evil for evil. Paul tells in Romans twelve seventeen that we are not to uh, repay no one evil for evil, but have regard for good things in the sight of man. And Romans twelve twenty one says, do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It says, not reviling for reviling. On the contrary, Peter says, a blessing. And the reason is that you and I now, we, we know what we're called to do is to inherit blessing and to be a blessing to other people. First Thessalonians 5, 7, 15 says, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourself and for all. You and I were called to this, to be a blessing to the people around us, especially to point them to Christ. And the great, that's the greatest blessing that we can be to someone. I mean, materially, if you can help someone and you can take care of those needs, fine. But the greatest blessing that you can do is to be an example of Christ to others and point people to Christ. And then for us as believers, to be an example of Christ to one another, to be Christ-like. And, and, and there is no greater blessing than that. When we're not, when we're not Christ-like, we are the greatest detriment to the body of Christ. Because we are working against uh, the body of Christ. We're in the flesh. Then verses 10 to 12, Peter proceeds to counsel them on, on living life. This is for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Now, Peter's quoting Psalm 34, uh, verses 12 to 16. It's pretty much the same. It says, who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Now, Peter here says that we are to uh, refrain our tongues from evil and, and our lips from speaking deceit. And, you know. It is our mouth who always gets us in trouble. Um, James describes the, the tongue as probably the greatest evil that ever existed. And uh, we open our mouth and we get ourselves in trouble. But the problem is that it, it's not just our mouth. It's where it comes from. The problem that goes deeper is our heart. Jesus tells us in, in Matthew 15 that out of the heart proceed these things. And it defiles a man. And he makes a list of you know, all the things that come out of the heart. So whatever is in our heart, whatever you have put in there, it will manifest itself in your life. It begins with your attitude, and if it's not checked, uh, it will become an action. Proverbs 13, 3 says, He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Proverbs ten nineteen says what? In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who refrains his lips is wise. Something that we should keep in mind all the time right before we, we talk. Verse 11 says, let, this, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And that, that's a good per picture of repentance there. You turn away from sin and you walk in righteousness. And you turn your back on evil and you do good. And we are to guard our heart and our mouth and recognize evil and sin for what it is. And this is something that not happens today. People do not understand, do not see things for what they are. They don't, they don't recognize evil. People speak of, out of the abundance of their heart, and it is evident what they're into. You can tell a lot about a person from what comes out of their mouth, right? And their exposure to sin and evil has desensitized them from recognizing evil. And they call, good, uh, they call evil good, and they call good evil. That's the society that you live in. So we need to make sure that we recognize evil when we see it. 
How do we do that? We, we need to look to the word of God. That's the standard. We need to be careful because the world has become comfortable uh, with sin and evil. And if our worldview is not biblical, then we'll begin to see things like the world does. And now we get ourselves in trouble. Verse 12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Here is, we have the approval of God of the believer and his disapproval of the non-believer. And really, that's, that's what matters. It's what got, what got things of you. That's, that's where it's at. Because that's who we answer ultimately. We're going to stand before God, every single one of us. And, and while we're here, what matters is that he is glorified and the people are pointing to Christ. I pointed to Christ. And, 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 and what people say and what people's opinions are in this world, if it doesn't agree with the word of God, it has nothing on me and I should have no part of it. We're not to be conformed to this world. How are we living our lives? Is God glorified and our people in our lives benefited from my life in Christ? The way I live my life in the church are people benefit, being benefited by my life in Christ. Both the believer and the non-believer. If that's not the case, then what am I living for? If that's not the case, what am I living for? If, if Christ is not glorified in my life and people are not pointed to them, then why, why am I here? Uh, it, it, it is pretty simple. And, and Peter is reminding us, like, this is who you are. And submission is integral to this, to your walk with the Lord. Because... As you submit yourself in these different areas, it is an example of Christ's submission to the Father. And, 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 and all of that points to him. And that's what we're here to do. We are to go out and preach the gospel to every creature, right? Let me pray for you guys. Father God, Lord, we, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy, Lord. We thank you for the life that we have in you, Lord. We thank you for saving us and giving us eternal life. Thank you, Lord, that uh, our lives belong to you. And help us, Lord, to be mindful of that, who we are, who we belong to, what you called us to do. And Lord, we pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know you today, that you would just speak to their hearts in regards to their sin and your love for them, Lord. And they will humble themselves and repent and ask you to be their Lord and Savior, Lord. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord and and you understand that your life is separated from God because of your sin, all you have to do is ask. Ask for forgiveness. Ask the Lord to forgive you, and, and, and he will do that. He'll give you a new life. And he'll fill you with his Holy Spirit, and he will direct your life. All you have to do is just walk and, you know, walk and obey him. So, Lord, we, we, we thank you for this day. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the life that we have in you. We pray that you go before us. As we go out tonight, as we go out into the rest of the week, help us to be salt and light uh, and to glorify you in everything we do, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We love you. And we ask things in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you guys. Let's uh, close in prayer. If you have any questions, if you need, I mean, let's close in worship. If you have any questions, you need any prayer, Pastor Fernando's over there. Um, I'll be up here too. Let's stand.